Romans chapter 5, Paul is on pretty much the end of a section. Uh, we've been in the second section of Romans so far. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have that in our Bibles. It doesn't have section 1 and section 2 and section 3. But there are different people that have studied the, the book and they kind of see the overarching themes. And the first section was basically about the sinfulness of man. Before we can ever realize that we need a Savior, we need to know that we're drowning. Before we ever realize that we need somebody to throw us a life vest or something that will keep us afloat, we've got to realize that we're in over our heads. And so Paul spends chapter 1 through about chapter 3, verse 20, and he, he describes the, the state of man without a Savior, without Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's a sad state. It's a state in which we can't swim hard enough. We can't go against the current hard enough to save ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But then section two is a section that talks about justification by faith. And that's a major theme in the book of Romans because we, in order to be allowed in the presence of a holy God, we have to stand in his presence as we are. And without Christ, we are not justified. We're guilty. So someone who is justified is someone that's cleared of all charges. They test them. They go through the trial like a, a judge and a jury. And, and they present all the evidence. And you're either guilty or you're not guilty. And Paul in the first three chapters has described that any human being trying to come up and boast about that, hey, I did more good works than bad, or I haven't done any bad works, is not going to be found just because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Even if you haven't sinned, which you have, even if that were the case, because of our being born to Adam and Eve, being descendants of Adam and Eve, we've all inherited sinful nature. So because of our sinful nature, Jesus Christ came to redeem us, to buy us back, to be in a relationship with him, to have our sins forgiven, to have our sinful state dealt with. And so uh, God provided that Savior in Jesus Christ. And so he's spent a while ex actually explaining to the Hebrews and to the Gentiles that there's, they're all on equal footing in front of God because all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. You can't do enough good things. You can't follow enough uh, religion. You can't make enough sacrifices. It won't work. Because even the sacrifices in the Old Testament were just a temporary covering until you sinned again. And then you needed another sacrifice to be right before God. And so in Romans chapter 5, he's, he's on the tail end of this section that I would call the section of justification by faith. And he's just described to them that even Abraham, the father of the faith, God showed him favor in accounting his faith to him as righteousness. He, he showed him that favor and said, you know what, my righteousness is imputed to you because your faith, your trusting in me has made you righteous. Your belief in me is what makes you righteous. And so verse 23 of chapter 4 said this, that it was not written just for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but it was written down for us as well, that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Him trusting in the Lord and his promises basically took his bankrupt account and God made a deposit. He said, because you believed me and what I've said, I'm going to deposit my righteousness into your account. And so because of that, he's no longer bankrupt spiritually. 
And then in verse 25, or verse 24, he says, It was also written for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. I like to say that a little bit different. Verse 25, who was delivered up because of our offenses, because of our sin, and he was raised up in order that we might be justified. His life, him being put to death and then raised up, was for our justification. So, we start this week in chapter 5, and he says, therefore. Anytime you say therefore, in the scriptures, you have to wonder, why is it, what is it there for? Well, he's just described that righteousness is accounted to us by faith, by believing what God has said is true. So, therefore, because justification comes through faith alone, by grace alone, as a free gift, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference between the peace of God that God gives us giving us the peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds, that brings us through trials. There's a difference between the peace of God and peace with God. Peace with God is what Jesus procured for us on the cross. Before we were forgiven of our sins, because of our very lifestyle, because of our sinful nature, we were at war with God. Our sins separated us from God. They built up this big barrier. God didn't build that wall we did by rejecting him. That's what happened in the garden. God said, you know what? Eat of any tree of the fruit in this garden. But of the one tree, don't eat the fruit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so she was tempted. She ate the fruit. She gave it to Adam. He knowingly ate it, knowing that, knowing that the command of God was not to eat it. And then sin separated them from God. They were cast out of the garden. And everybody goes, well, that's kind of mean. God made a rule for them and then cast them out of the garden when they broke it. Well, he told them what it took to be in the presence of God. Don't do this one thing. You can do any of these other things. Don't do this one thing. And they couldn't take it. It's like telling a little kid not to hit the red button. I have to. It's there. What's it going to do? But we don't know that. The kids don't know that. They just know that the parents told them, don't hit the red button. And they think you're trying to hold something from them. So they go, well, I got to touch it. Not knowing that that red button could possibly harm them. They don't know what it does. They're just hitting it. And the Lord didn't tell them, hey, if you do this, then this. Although he did tell them, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Satan came along and said, you shall not surely die. Now, when they ate the fruit, did they die immediately? No. But they would die after a certain amount of time. They were never meant to die. They were supposed to live in the presence of God for eternity. That's why when we lose a loved one and someone dies, there's this separation that it's like, this isn't fair in our minds. We're like, this isn't fair. It was too soon. And you're right, it was. It was never meant to be that way. It's because of sin. Sin brings forth death. That's what James writes. And so he says, so my main point though is that peace of God is what's described in uh, Philippians chapter 4. He says, be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything, in prayer and supplications, make your request made known to God so that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding or surpasses knowledge will guard your heart and your mind until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's the peace of God. But first we're going to have peace with God before we can ever experience the peace of God. That's where salvation happens. When we come to God, confess our sin to Him, realize we need a Savior, then because we come through the blood of Jesus Christ, we're made just in His sight, He looks down on us. He no longer sees the sins of our past or our present sins. What He sees is His Son. He sees the sacrifice. And what did He say about Jesus? He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So when He sees His Son, He's well pleased. So when we come to God, by faith, through the Son, He looks down, He sees His Son. We're, we have the garment of Christ clothing us. We're covered by Him. And so He's pleased with us. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Since we've been justified by faith, not by works, lest we should boast about it, but since we've been justified by faith, believing that Jesus is enough. We sang that song, all of you is more than enough for all of me. But I confess to you that many times, he's not enough. I want this, or I want that. And the Lord's saying, I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness in my son. He is your hope. And then he says there, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So one of the benefits of coming to God by faith is that number one, verse one says, we have peace with God. Everybody is searching for peace. People cry out for peace in the 60s. Peace, man, make, make love, not war. Well, they were looking for a peace that only the world can, the world can't even give that kind of peace. Ever since the beginning of creation, since the fall of man, the first kids that Adam and Eve had, what happened? One got jealous of the other and killed them, Cain and Abel. And from that point on, that's how it's always been. There will never be peace in the Middle East until Jesus Christ steps down out of heaven onto the Mount of Olives and he makes things right. In the valley of Armageddon, where it talks about in the book of Revelation, the end of all things, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the stage is going to be set. And Jesus is going to set his foot down. And all the armies of the world are going to be encamped against Jesus Christ. And we think about Armageddon, we think about this great battle. There's going to be tribulation. But the beauty of the battle in Megiddo in the, in the valley of Armageddon, is that it's going to be a short battle. Because all the armies of the world, they're going to be strengthened and build chariots or tanks or whatever they're going to have by then. Floating cars for all I know. And they're going to be thinking, we're going to put to death this guy. We're going to get rid of him. And at that point, Jesus Christ is going to speak a word. And they're all going to be put to nothing. That's when peace comes. When Jesus Christ sets his foot down and says, enough. But until then, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we also, as a benefit, since 
We come to God through being justified by faith. We have peace with God. And we also, verse 2, have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, oftentimes we think of God's grace and we think about the death of Christ, the propitiation, the payment that turns away God's wrath, the gift of God to us for salvation. We've been born again, new creations in Christ. But that same grace is offered to us as a well by which we draw strength to live this life. Because the Christian life is not about just about dying to ourselves, but it's about living for Christ. I just read in my devotional this morning that in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, for this life that we live, this battle that we're waging, is not against principalities and powers, excuse me, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and the powers of the dark age, the, the demonic powers that be, that are behind the scenes. And so we've not been saved so that we can be comfortable necessarily. We've been saved so that we can, now we can fight on the side that's going to win. Because the Christian life is not a stroll through the park. It's a battle. It's a battle for people's souls. And so every day you and I are going through trials that try to draw us away from a life of faith. Now we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. So the manager that you work for, or the guy that's on the road in front of you that keeps you know, hitting his brakes every time that you're like, let's go with the speed limit. You know, the trials that we go through that stress us out, to, that take our eyes off of Jesus and put them on our circumstances, those things are all opportunities God's giving us to trust Him for our daily needs, to trust Him for the grace to get through. He says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So he's talking about circumstances. He's talking about getting through. He's talking about in those circumstances, being able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he says, here's another benefit we're given because we come by faith through Jesus Christ. Verse three, not only that, but we also we glory in tribulation. We glory in it. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character works out hope. And this hope, verse 6, verse 5, does not di disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in verse 2, he said, we, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me define a couple of those words. He says, we rejoice, and the word rejoice means this, a triumphant, rejoicing confidence. Rejoicing is to have confidence that's triumphant. I like that. How many days do you have stuff that happens and you don't feel triumphant? You feel like you failed all day. I have more of those than I have the ones where I walk home and I go, I did it. It was good. All of it. Most of my days I come home and Kelly goes, you okay? Because <laughs> I got this look on my face like I've been trudging through the mud all day. 
Now the reality is I may feel like I failed all day. But the scripture says that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We're conquerors. Most days I don't feel like a conqueror. I feel like I did some stuff good, but I don't feel like I did perfection by any means, not even close. And so what the Lord says is that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope is a word that means happy certainty. So both of these words, rejoice and hope, have to do with certainty. They have to do with confidence. I don't walk around with confidence all the time. I would like to say that I do, but I don't. But here's the reality. Many times, I don't walk around in certainty and confidence because I'm measuring success based on how I feel. But most days, my feelings lie to me. We even sing a song once in a while um, that says, my feelings lie. And they do. My emotions stir things and they start to put things in my head that aren't really there. But all of these things point to the fact that my hope is in something that will disappoint. He says there in verse 3, Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. I want to submit to you that if you see a trial, see a tribulation, we're not talking about annoyances. We're talking about things that are hard. The daily things that we go through that cause us to fear, to doubt, to be overwhelmed, those things, with a God's eye perspective, we rejoice in them because we know that these tribulations, these things that God allows in our life, you have to realize that if you're going through a tribulation, if you experience a trial, that God, at the very least, if you are in Christ, has allowed this thing in. He's not so weak that he can't stop it from coming, but sometimes he allows those things to happen in our lives to produce perseverance. And that perseverance will produce character. And that character will produce hope. And it will reveal it to the world. Because if every... Just imagine this. You get saved. And all of a sudden your life is easy and there's no trials. Now to the person that's not saved, they look at your life and they look at it like the people that were around Job when he was tried. They look at Job and they go, well, of course, God, I mean, of course he blesses you with his tongue. Of course he, he serves you with his life. You, you, all you do is bless him. He's living in ideal circumstances. What about the rest of us? We got it hard. Stuff happens to us. My car breaks down. I get a flat tire. My boss is a jerk, you know, whatever the thing might be. You know, anybody could serve God if everything was peachy keen all the time. But that's not how it works. Because our God loves us enough to allow us to be tried. And when we're tried, it shows us what we're trusting in. It proves what's really in there. We're like a tube of toothpaste. Our lives, our character, our us as individuals, we are tubes of toothpaste. Now just imagine that. You're a tube of toothpaste, and once in a while you get a little upset, and the lid flies off. Life gets hard, you get squeezed. There's pressures coming from every direction. Now I don't know what those pressures are for you. I only know what they are for me. But when those pressures come, and you get squeezed, what's going to come out? 
is what's inside the tube. If you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what comes out? Toothpaste. Now that tube of toothpaste might think that it's a tube of ketchup. But when it gets squeezed, toothpaste comes out, right? There are many people walking around calling themselves Christians, saying, I believe Jesus Christ, but when the pressures of life come and they squeeze them, what's in there is what comes out. Jesus himself said this. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of who you are and what you trust in, when you get squeezed, it'll be proven. And so he says that. So I would submit to you that sometimes... I'm not glorying in tribulation. I'm not proving God to be faithful because I've placed my trust in something else that won't glory. I've placed my trust in something that when it gets squeezed out of me, it's nasty. And so he says there, if you are in Christ, this is the the condition. Verse one of chapter five says, to those who have been justified by faith, those are the ones that have peace with God through Jesus. Those are the ones that have access by faith into this grace, this daily grace that helps us to remain standing in Christ. Those are the ones that rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let me ask you, when circumstances get hard, when you really get squeezed, do you rejoice in the hope that you have in Christ? I have trouble with that. When I'm at work and my boss starts getting on to me for something I didn't do, or number two, I did do, and I need to just own up to it, I start to get all anxious. I lose my peace. I'm nervous. I'm fearful. And my coworkers can tell. That's okay. Because we got chinks in our armor, right? It should be a red flag to us to go, why is this thing upsetting me so much? Who am I here to serve? Well, Just this week, I was reading the devotional. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Masters, subject yourself to those who are slaves, bond slaves, bond servants, employees. Subject yourselves to your earthly masters in order to please God, not in order to please them. So if anything, to be right before God when I do screw up at work, my hopes that I'm going to serve God with all diligence and I'm going to be honest before him. So when I screw up, I tell my boss, hey, I screwed up. Not because he's going to be pumped about it, but because when I'm (laughs) honest and I'm not a liar, God is pleased because I've been faithful to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then he says there in verse five, our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what he's saying is this, if you're in the tribulation, you're in a trial, you get squeezed, things get hard, and you're reminded of the hope you have in Christ, that the worst that anybody can do to you in this life is take your job away. That's not really the worst. What's the worst? They can kill you. As a Christian, if you were threatened and someone says, I'm going to kill you, what's going to happen after you die? At the very worst, you're going to go to be with Jesus. No more suffering, no more pain. So it's the best. The worst is the best. So we hope and we glory in that because we go, nobody can hurt us. We can't be hurt. We can't be scared. Now practically we get scared. We get doubtful. We get fearful. So 
But what I want you to recognize from verse 5 is that if our hope is in Christ, then our hope will not disappoint us because it's in Christ. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So, because it convicts us of those things, reminds us that Christ is our salvation, that He's our hope. When our lives get squeezed, what happens is we go, it's okay, my home's not here. I'm not supposed to be comfortable. God's allowed this, so it must mean that He's trying to do something in me that won't happen when I'm comfortable. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James picks up on this same theme. It's right after the book of Hebrews. James chapter 1 and verse 2. James, not Paul. James writes this. He's another person. He's, he, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. These are trials that you didn't necessarily pick. They're not because you sinned and got into consequences. These are trials that you fall into just by walking through this life. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Here's the reason. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Patience. He says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God allows a trial in your life. It might be because you're lacking some form of character in your life. So He wants to produce that character but it won't produce when you're happy and everything's fine. So he turns up the heat a little bit. And as he turns up the heat a little bit, he says your faith, oh, that'll be in 1 Peter. But what he does is he, he produces that character by allowing the heat to turn up, by allowing the pressure to happen. Think about some of the things that are made through manufacturing processes. You know, the chairs you're sitting on have legs. And they're made out of some sort of metal. I'm not going to say they're steel. They're probably something cheaper than that. But in order to make those legs what they are, they heat them up, and then they bend them once they're hot. But they can't be bent in the proper way without breaking until they're heated up and made soft. So when the Lord allows trials and pressure, He does it so we can be formed in what He's making. We're His masterpiece. And then turn to 1 Peter, which is the book right after James. In 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, he says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So this says that sometimes we need to be grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith, your trust in God, is more precious to God than gold. That's something that we highly value. Gold, silver, those kind of metals that are precious metals, they'll perish. And he says we refine them with heat. We build up the heat, and then whatever the junk is, the impurities, we rake them off the top and then they mold that and they sell it and it's fine gold. It's not just that pot metal gold. 
He's looking for our faith, our trust in Him to be pure. So He allows the trials of this life to turn up the heat. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 7. He says that the genuineness of your faith, or the purity of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revealing of Jesus Christ. And look at what he says in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. We haven't seen Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit's been poured out on our hearts. Because this life gets hard sometimes, we have to lean out, we have to trust in Him. And though we have not seen Him, we love Him. Though now, he says in verse 8, you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Remember, Paul said there in Romans that we glory in tribulation. And here's what he says in verse 9. We rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. There are many people walking about today, talking about faith, and trying to obtain possessions. Now, are possessions bad things? No. They're neutral, really. What we do with them is either sinful or not. But what the Lord says is the end of our faith, the ultimate end of it all, the ultimate end of our faith, our trust in Jesus, is what? It's the salvation of our souls. So if our hope disappoints, notice that it must be because our hope is in something that perishes, something that will be destroyed by moth or rust. And most of the things we put our hope in can be destroyed. So he allows those things to perish, to be corruptible, to rust, whether it's a car, whether it's a relationship. He allows those things to go sour so that we'll find Christ. Hey, you know what? The one thing in my life that didn't melt away when the heat was turned up was Christ. He didn't run off when everything got bad and I got aggravated. He's right there next to me. He comes with us through the fiery furnace. And so, back there in Romans, he says in verse 3, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. When you're going through a trial, when you're going through tribulation, if you recognize that this could be a good thing, then that's because the Lord has revealed it to you by the Holy Spirit. He's revealed to you, hey, I know this is going to be hard, but I'm going to produce something in you that won't happen apart from this situation. And your hope won't disappoint you because it'll be in Christ. And Christ will not be moved. So there, in verse 6, he says this, and he gives this reason. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies with rec- for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received 
the reconciliation, the salvation of our souls. We've been brought back to Him. Remember, we started talking about how our sins separated us from Him. And then, in due time, in just the right time in human history, Christ died for us. Not just for all those who would believe, but for you individually, Christ died for you at just the right time. And you had that revealed to you. I'm a sinner. I need salvation. But when did Christ die for you? Did he die for you once you cleaned up and showed up to church? No. It says there that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. In the present tense, that means Christ died for me while I was still sinning against him. And he says, look at all the human relationships around you. He says there, for scarcely or hardly for a righteous man will one die. We know of people that will die in the place of somebody else. They'll lay their lives down. They'll throw themselves on a grenade to save their platoon. There are people like that. He's not saying that doesn't happen. He says it's rare. That's why they have medals of honor. That's why they have the Purple Heart. They award people who show that kind of sacrifice to save more people than just themselves. Even the world recognizes that that's an act of valor. But what he says is that's, that doesn't happen very often. Yet perhaps, he says, for a good man, someone would even dare to die for them. Someone that is good to their fellow man. They'll die in their place. But these are righteous people. These are good people. God didn't die for good people. He contrasts that. He said, but God, but is a contrast word. He says, but God demonstrates, shows, lives out his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Not when we cleaned it up, not when we did enough good works, not when we took a shower and showed up to church, whenever it was, but while we were still sinning against him, when we were still undesirable at all. We had nothing to offer, dead in our sins and trespasses. That's when Christ died for us. And he demonstrates that. So turn to John chapter 15. Because this is something that Jesus himself taught. Paul didn't come up with this on his own. Paul was a man submitted to the authority of the Lord. That which he received from the Lord... He talked to us. He wrote it down. John chapter 15, verse 9. He says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide or rest in my love. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus was subjected or submitted the will of the Father. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. He says, This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. He doesn't say love one another when you feel like it. He doesn't say love one another like you think people should be loved. He says love one another as I have First love you. You can't love anybody like God loves them until you first received his kind of love. 
And then he goes on to explain, verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this. There is no greater way to show your love than what Jesus is getting ready to do. They don't know he's getting ready to do this, but he says it plain as day. He says, there's no greater love than this. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, if he died before we repented, if he took on the sins of the world before we stopped sinning, and then he called us friends before we ever could deserve it. That's grace. He says there in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now there's a song on the radio, I'm a friend of God. He's played up his end of the bargain. He demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But Jesus just said here pretty plainly, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So I would submit to you the question, are you a friend of God based on that verse? That's, it shakes me. It turns up the heat. You know, and as he turns up that heat, don't feel condemned, just go, maybe there's some things I need to change. Because God's been very plain in his word. Now he doesn't force us to submit to him, but since he's died for us, how can we not just offer up and say, Lord, whatever you want, not what I want. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you'll love one another. And so, Paul is saying that God demonstrates his love by sacrificing. But as I was reading this passage this week, and as I was listening to some people comment on these verses, I gotta say something. Sometimes I think of the Trinity, okay? You got the Trinity. These are all these explanations. There's only one God, but he's manifested in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So God, the Father, sent the Son to die in our place, to deal with our sin issue, to break down the middle wall of separation, to bring us back to God, to redeem us. But at the same time, Jesus Christ is not less than the Father. He is God. And I love that because I was reading this last week, and I got to take out my phone to read this because I left the note on my phone. God's plans are not products of sudden impulse. He counted the cost. He knew what it would cost him to bring fellowship back to us, to break down that wall of sin. And he did it anyway. He sent Jesus to do it, but it wasn't like he was sending somebody else to do his dirty work. He came down and did it himself. Philippians 2 talks about this. says this, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. 
he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when God allows tribulation, when he allows that separation, that that pressure that happens on our lives, he's causing character to be built, just like Jesus had character in his own life developed. Now he is fully God, but he was also fully man. And the writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus learned to be obedient to the Father through suffering. So how much more you and I have to learn to trust and be obedient to the Father through the suffering that we, it it happens. I don't think he's up there going, okay, so-and-so needs the heat turned up today. I think he just goes, hey, it's coming, but I'm going to use it for something better than just for them to be in pain. I'm going to build something in them. I'm going to mold their, their life using this. And when he does that, what happens, he says, In verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, brought back to God while enemies through the death of his son, much more now, having already been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We've been saved by his death from the wrath of God. Now we will be saved through this life, by the life of Jesus, because Jesus isn't dead. He died on the cross, and then he rose again. And then he sent us the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, to indwell you and I, to give us power over sin, and then to give us the power to live a life of faith and obedience to him. And as we live that life, as we obey his commands, it's what saves us. We've been saved But now practically in our everyday life, he saves us. He preserves us. His Holy Spirit on our life is like, um, it's like the stamp on a package. You put a stamp on a package, it's sealed with the tape, and that stamp basically says, we will take your package, we will be responsible for it until it's delivered to its final destination. The Holy Spirit is given to you and I and poured out. He doesn't just send a little trickling. He pours out his Holy Spirit and we are responsible to draw from the water of life. He is the water of life. We draw from it every day by reading his word, by praying, by meeting with other believers. We draw from the well of salvation and he saves us through this life. Does that make sense? So like in the old days, a king would put a seal. He'd take a stamp and say, this is from me. I seal it. And that basically says if anything happens to this package, by the time it gets to its destination, I'm going to be notified and you're going to bear the consequences. So he basically, because of his authority, makes sure that that package is made safe all the way to its destination. And in the same way, God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit so that you will be preserved through this life, through trials, through tribulations, through good days and bad, until you receive the end of your salvation, the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul. It's, it's something that we're given, it's a free gift, but it's something we have to work out. 
as we keep going. Because there are days where we can make a decision that will completely derail us. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but I'm saying you can walk away from the love of God and stop resting in Him. But He does this now. Verse 11, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So turn with me, if you want, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then one more place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Oops. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I'm saying that for me, not for you. I'm still trying to get this whole Bible page turning thing down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the ministry or the service of reconciliation. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> that is, that, of, that God was in Christ and he was reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or depositing their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation, the word of God. Now then, we are his ambassadors. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This Christian walk is not just about our death to ourself, but it's also about our life lived to God. And so Paul's making this distinction in Romans 5, telling us what it looks like and the benefits that God's given us as his children. We've been reconciled. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation, sending the same message to others who don't have hope in Christ. And also the reminder that if our hope is shaken, that it's been misplaced. And so uh, that's where we'll end today. Lord, thank you so much for sending your son. But somehow in the mix of the Trinity and, and how you are God in three persons, Lord, thank you that when you sent your son, you essentially came yourself. You died in my place, not deserving punishment or wrath, but being completely innocent when I should have been put to death. And yet you didn't just procure salvation so I could be saved, get my ticket punched to heaven. But you also provided a way so that I can receive daily grace. So I can receive daily bread, daily water, drawn from the well of salvation to sustain me through this hard and difficult and trialful world. And so Lord, in our daily lives, as we experience trials, 
remind us in the midst of those that those trials are for our good. That they're supposed to proclaim to the world as we remember that they're going to produce in us perseverance. Just as going out and running extra miles in order to prepare for a race produces in us the ability to run when the race starts. Lord, we are in a race and I want us all to be able to finish well. So Lord, produce in us the perseverance. Produce in us the character. And produce in us a hope. Lord, we have hope for eternity. Help us to draw from it and to remember it when things squeeze us. And Lord, I pray that as you allow us to be squeezed, that out of us would come rivers of living water that would overflow onto the people around us and they would want to draw from the same well. Lord, save souls. Save us daily. But save others as we live this life by faith, trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen.